the other. Wherefore, all hostilities, both by sea and land, shall from henceforth cease. All prisoners on both sides shall be set at liberty, and his Britannic Majesty shall with all convenient speed, and without causing any destruction or carrying away any Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants, withdraw all his armies, garrisons, and fleets from the said United States, and from every post, place, and harbour within the same. Done at Paris, this third day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1783. The British had simply lost the war. A war which, with the application of a little more nous, could have been nipped in the bud. Mind you, America would probably have gone at some time, maybe even partly for similar reasons to those that started their own civil war. It's also possible that the wealthy West Indies sugar plantations and the emerging Canada might eventually have formed some kind of commercial union, maybe even a federal one, with America. But once British America broke away and became the United States, then that possibility disappeared. So was American independence a disaster for Britain and a disaster for the Empire? Curiously, no. The people who lost most after the war were the American Indians and the African slaves. Sections of that Paris Treaty carved up the territories that were rightly the homelands of the indigenous peoples. They would never recover them. The British had believed that the Native Americans could prove to be useful allies in the war, and consequently the British, as opposed to the French, had been relatively friendly to them. But the new Americans saw no great need to make concessions to the native population. As for the slaves, any chance of imminent freedom now disappeared. Twenty percent of the population of the newly independent United States were slaves, about 400,000 people. To the Americans, those slaves were their biggest commercial asset. Thomas Jefferson himself had a particular interest in that part of the Paris Treaty which insisted that the British promise not to take any slaves with them when they left. He owned more than 200, and so did many of his friends. Independence from the Crown meant nothing at all in terms of freedom for the slaves. Britain itself was tinkering with the idea of anti-slavery, and four years after the war ended, the Abolition Society was formed, but a slave tobacco picker in Virginia wouldn't have known that. The divide in American society would continue to exist certainly well into the 20th century and in places beyond that. But if the British hadn't lost the war, might the remaining British have put an end to slavery in America by the 19th century as they did in other colonies? It's possible, but in that case, slavery and not taxation might eventually have become the issue that produced an American rebellion. But that's what if. Let's return to the actual 1780s and Britain's loss of its American colonies. In practice, there were two immediate advantages for the British. First, they no longer had to find the funds, a huge amount, to defend America. And second, defeat gave them a much stronger hold over the neighbouring territory of Canada. During the war, it was clear that not all Americans wanted independence. Even some families were divided. But given the very nature of colonialism and the fact that most settlers and frontiers people were notably independently minded, it might seem that the opening phrases of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence were designed to appeal to their basic instincts, even to those loyal to the crown. When in the course of human events... 
it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Why wouldn't that appeal to everyone? First, a colonist who was loyal to the Crown would be just as likely to have believed that anyway. He or she didn't need a revolution to make them cherish life, liberty and happiness. Many of them were loyal by instinct and for sound commercial reasons. They were doing very well financially under British rule. Second, many of them remained loyalists. Nothing that happened before, during or after the war changed their minds. They believed what had happened was wrong. Third, like many other Americans, loyalists were not bowled over by the character of the leaders and some of the events which immediately followed the ending of the war. And fourth, as loyalists, they found themselves on the losing side. And whatever the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights which followed said, they believed they were vulnerable to the whims of the victors. So here are four good reasons for these people not to stay in independent America. But where could they go? Britain? Many of these people were third, even fourth-generation settlers. They may have had identifiable roots in the old country, but there was nothing they could go back to. And their money wouldn't buy as much in England as they had in America. Their prospects would be poor. And there was the psychological wrench. They were colonists. They were used to greater horizons. Nevertheless, some did go, but not many. There were still opportunities in the West Indies, but not many. It was a more restricted and restricting society. Planting there was everything. The third option was Canada. Canada had not sought independence. Canada was a relatively safe option, and it was close. So in their tens of thousands, the Tories, or United Empire Loyalists, as they became called, went north. One of them was David Fanning. He hadn't wanted to go. America was his home. He was born in Johnson County in North Carolina in poor circumstances. During the war, Fanning came out for the crown, skirmished, was captured, escaped, was recaptured, was thrown naked in irons, escaped again, and went as far south as St. Augustine, Florida. Because of his fighting loyalty to the king, there was no chance of Fanning ever returning home at the end of the war, so he went via New Brunswick and spent the rest of his days in Nova Scotia. He wrote a journal in which he called himself Colonel David Fanning, a Tory in the Revolutionary War with Great Britain. I lost property to the amount of £1,625 and 10 shillings. But it was not like a coat taken out of my hand or gold taken out of my pocket. I couldn't get anything for my losses. I have lost my all on account of my attachment to the British Crown. In the nineteenth year of my age, I entered into the war and proceeded from one step to another, and at the conclusion thereof was forced to leave the place of my nativity for my adherence to the British Constitution. And after my sore fatigues, I arrived in St John River, and there, with the blessing of God, 
I have hitherto enjoyed the sweets of peace and freedom under the benevolent auspices of the British government, which every loyal and true subject may enjoy with me. David Fanning, Kings County, Long Beach, New Brunswick, June the 24th, 1790. And so tens of thousands sought further and wider horizons and started their own trek into Canada. They took with them three assets, the need to succeed, experience and language. The inflow of British Americans perhaps did more to overwhelm French influence than any policy devised at that stage by the Crown, other than in Quebec. One consequence was that Britain's hold on Canada as a colony consolidated. It had to be an advantage to the Crown that the territory should be populated by loyalists. But loyalty comes at a price, and the new settlers needed extravagant land grants and bursaries in order to succeed. But where in Canada were they to go? Canada covers more than nine million square kilometres, but in the 1780s, not very much of it was settled. Between 35 and 40,000 loyalists settled on the eastern seaboard territories. Others moved to the northwest, above the St. Lawrence. Quebec, in order to accommodate both the French-speaking peoples and the United Empire loyalists, was split into what became known as Upper and Lower Canada. So the restructuring of the Canadian colony was an early consequence of the war. But it wasn't a convenient and cosy arrangement. The settlers already there were hardly going to move over politely. British, English-speaking migrants settling alongside French-speaking Canadians made uneasy neighbours. Neither side had forgotten past wars and continuing antagonisms. Yet they were united in their suspicion towards Republican Americans south of the border. The Americans...